Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. In this episode, we speak with Eric Kinahan and Rowena Kennedy Epstein, editors of the new collection of Muriel Rukeyser's prose, The Muriel Rukeyser Era. Eric Kinahan is associate professor and chair in the Department of English at the University at Albany, SUNY. He is the author of Queering Cold War Poetry. Rowena Kennedy Epstein is Associate Professor of Gender Studies and 20th and 21st Century Women's Writing at the University of Bristol. She is the author of Unfinished Spirit and editor of Rukeyser's Savage Coast. We spoke to Eric and Rowena about Muriel Rukeyser's life and legacy, why much of her writing was actively suppressed during her time, and how reading Rukeyser's prose helps us better understand her ideas, her career, and her poetry. Hello, Eric and Rowena. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. <laughs> well, I'm excited to talk to you about the new edited volume you have. Just coming out, the Muriel Rukeyser era, Selected Prose. Tell us how this project came to be. Well, it started a, a long time ago. I think it was 2011 is when I, I began when I began the project initially. I had been invited to give a a talk. Um, I forgot all about this. I give a talk at uh, a library in um, upstate New York about Mira Rukeyser. A friend of mine who had been a former colleague in our uh, Jewish uh, studies program at the University of Albany, SUNY, had invited me to give a talk on Rukeyser, although I didn't really work on her. He was organizing these public lectures uh, called Jews Along the Hudson, it was really, it was, really, <laughs> it was a really curious thing. So I agreed to, I agreed to do it. And then at the same time, um, a friend of mine who is now the curator at the poetry collection, James Maynard, uh, someone who had gone to graduate school with at Temple University, also like sent me along this call for papers uh, for the Journal of Narrative Theory about a special issue on Rukeyser. It was like the universe was telling me I had to work on Rukeyser. Um, and so, you know, I was very familiar with her poetry and a big fan, as many people are. Um, but I didn't really know anything about her. And I was curious as someone who works in queer studies and political studies about how we might read her as a a Jewish queer forebear um, and, and for poet activists. And so I went to the Library of Congress <laughs> and that sent me down the rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> I was just trying to find like anything I could about her that led to my realizing I couldn't find anything <laughs> about her and just became inundated um, and just totally immersed in the, um, the, the archives. It's a huge archive at the Library of Congress. That, that was my introduction. And I was just like, all this stuff has to get out there somehow. And I guess mine was similar, exactly the same moment, actually, as Eric, where I um, had studied Rukeyser at the CUNY Graduate Center during my PhD, a little bit of her poetry, and in a class in the Spanish Civil War, also ended up at the Library of Congress looking for the novel that would become Savage Coast, or that is Savage Coast. Um, and it was a similar kind of experience in the archive, but also a credit to Elizabeth Dahmer because that Journal of Narrative Theory special issue brought actually a lot of us together who have now been working on her pretty continuously. 
Um, and But it was similar going into the archive, encountering the novel as this huge unpublished and unfinished work and the excitement of that, and then realizing how much more there was. And so not only did I see the novel as this kind of revolution in form and women's engagement with politics in the 30s, it became the realization like Eric that it was so vast how much had been lost and then published or left out of print. Um, so it's kind of a moment where your kind of career trajectory changes because of what you're encountering. It was just exciting, daunting. <laughs> and so Eric and I have known each other actually since then, yeah. I think. Yeah, I, re I remember when we actually met, you were reading the proofs for Savage Coast. <laughs> <laughs> and we were, um, we met up at a cafe. This is, uh, yeah. yeah, we were both. Um, much younger. Much, much younger <laughs> and spending time. I don't know, I was spending half my time in, in the city at that time. And um, yeah, we met up near my apartment in Manhattan and <laughs> and uh, we're just talking about her. And then that, that sent me like, down uh Rowena was working on the novel I, I was like okay the short form stuff has to get out and I began a manic project <laughs> lasted a long time of just recovering as much um of Rue Kaiser's short form prose uh, mostly nonfiction, that I could find and I had over the course of several years and several grants through my institution had kept going back to the Library of Congress and the Berg collection at the New York Public Library, which are the two chief repositories of Rukeyser's papers. And I had initially, I mean, I think the manuscript for the original vision, <laughs> no one will ever publish. I mean, I didn't realize that, <laughs> just like just how enormous it was. It's probably, I mean, this is a pretty um, hefty volume yeah, for a trade volume by the Muir Rukeyser era. But the original manuscript, I think, was it, it, it would have been, I had it as two volumes, but it was probably three. Yeah, well, it was huge. Yeah, it's yeah. huge. It is still only a fraction in a way of the prose she actually did produce. And she's funny because in a lot of her public work, she'll say, Oh, I just did the prose writing so I could keep going as a poet. Or the prose writing is like the you know a footnote really to these larger poetic things. But I think what we all came to realize is actually how dedicated she was to the cross genre kind of multimodal forms that she was working in this prose and how it informed her poetry. Um, and so over time, we're like, this stuff really actually makes everything she writes make more sense. Um, it brings so much more out. So then when I started working on the unfinished spirit, which is also with Cornell and working a lot with this material, Eric and I kind of came to Eric and I was like, let's like do it together and finish it because it should be out there. I mean, it's just extraordinary work. So we kind of, I came on at the end to help deal with the three volumes into one volume, I guess. <laughs> Sounds like there's, there's so much material that there could be a, some additional volumes. In the Absolutely. Future, for sure. Absolutely. It's amazing that there's all this prose and writings that she that she wrote, and then they've been forgotten. And that's obviously what you, she brought you guys together to uh, finish the work of, of yeah. spreading message and her her work to to the larger population when it was unfortunately ignored in, in during her time. So for those who may not know that much about Rue Kaiser, and this is a huge question, but could you give us like a broad overview of her life and her legacy? This could take like several hours encapsulate <laughs> it. Well, in some, I mean, should I do it or you want to do it? Well, why don't you? Okay, Ruth I'll... is working on the biography, so we can see if she can do a 
Can you do well, it? Well, I kind of have a three-sentence thing. I have a three-sentence thing, oh, which is, so one is that in the 1930s, as a young person, a young woman, she was like, I think probably one of the most important working poets at the time. Um, she was considered kind of on the cutting edge of both avant-garde and political left poetry. And she was popular. She produced three books by the time she was, by 1930, she produced three books of poems, right? So you can say, and she was reviewed constantly. She was like in the space of the world that was making culture in the period. Um, and then in the 40s and into the 50s with the increasingly kind of restrictive Cold War climate because she was queer, because she was a feminist and a non-conform or non-conforming in the gender roles of women, because she chose to be a single mother and because of her radical politics, which becomes very clear, I think, in this volume, how radical she really was and radical against kind of the grain of, of kind of the left wing at the time as well. Um, and with more nuanced critiques of the period, she became blacklisted. So in the 50s, she's basically in some ways disappeared. The cultural canon is kind of made without her and many women of the 30s. And then in the 70s, she's kind of returns again as what Anne Sexton and Adrian Rich called mother of us all as kind of the center of kind of a new women's and gay liberation movement. And she wins lots of awards and her career is kind of reascendant, but not with her prose. Her poetry is kind of given a lineage much more explicitly, um, but the prose work is not brought along in that kind of revival of her in the seventies. So there's like my, that's my like five sentence <laughs> career. <laughs> Anything you want to add, Eric? Um, no, I think that, <laughs> That encapsulates it. That's great. That that really, I mean, that 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 gets at the heart of sort of the public Rukeyser. I think, um, you know, I think the things to think about, or just for for people to be aware of, because a lot of people are not aware of it, is that, like many other artists, during both the popular and cultural front moment of the late of the mid to late thirties, after the rise of the Spanish Civil War, which she witnessed firsthand, the outbreak of, um. Um, she was working in various ways uh, and sort of informed by the, the, the poetics and politics of the Works Progress Administration. And mm -hmm. she was involved also working for the, you know, working for the state later on, working for the Office of War Information as a propagandist uh, during the Second World War. Um, so her politics are really, are, are really, um, I mean, there it's a, it's a form of what I think of as like an unaligned leftism. Um, I always want to call her an anarchist, although she, there's only like one brief moment when she sort of like embraces the term <laughs> or just thinks of it as a possibility. And that's I want to call her that too, though. I yeah. mean, we both want to call her that to some degree. <laughs> <laughs> we have our personal reasons. Um, but she is also very much, you know, think her, her, her politics are also quite... Um, they evolve a lot yeah. over the course of her career. And I think that we have a very <laughs> culturally and intellectually and academically have very sort of closed understandings of like what leftism is um, or could be. And one of the ways in which she's very uh, generative for, for me as a thinker, as well as a poet is the ways in which she's always reinventing not only herself and her poetics, but also the possibilities for politics and like pushing against our very close understandings of what activism is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and she was really got, um, she got in trouble because people basically said you shouldn't, 
in some ways they said you shouldn't change your mind, which is in fact a very kind of old left um, idea, which is that you stay with these kind of certain ideological forms and you kind of keep pushing at that. Where she really, her whole idea of a process-oriented poetics, which we talk about in the introduction, um, a sense that you kind of change, you are changed in the moment that you're engaging, it changes you. Um, and you kind of have to be open and expansive to those changes. Now we see that as visionary, but in the 40s and 50s, that even the 30s, that was considered problematic or wishy-washy. Um, and it's why she often got called like the poster girl of the left. That seemed like she was only going with popular opinion. But really, she was trying to think about a more, far more intricate kind of engagement with the world um, and thinking about how to counter hegemonic ideas. Um, which also meant not being static as a writer and thinker. I like that. I like that. So she's evolving in an, in an we could call potentially an unevolved time uh, yeah. in her lifetime. And now we've reached a point where now the uh, you have discovered her, and now many people are discovering her. And it's like we we now can accept her ideas, whereas back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, the majority of the population just couldn't, or at yeah. least the publishers. So that you have this great line um, in the book. You said. During a period when few women were allowed to position themselves as public intellectuals, much less as equal citizens, most of this writing by Rukeyser has been forgotten, not reprinted since its first appearance, if it was published at all, buried by editors and publishers because of conservative mid-century gender and political orthodoxies. That it just hits it on the head. So if when I read that, I just got so angry. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> like why that, that makes me it makes me furious but um but now i'm happy because now her writing's coming up <laughs> tell us about some of the roadblocks that she hit or or do you have any stories that that uh, <laughs> so many stories <laughs> eric do you want to go should i go i don't know you want to talk about the response to i don't know like many keys is one of the good ones yeah, many many keys so this is an essay that she was mm -hmm. commissioned to write by the nation in 1956 i believe micah rosenthal prominent critic poet asked her to and and a friend and, and get the, right. like also, this is also like the theme of right. her life, <laughs> a friend asks her yeah. to write um write an essay that will appear in this sort of left of center periodical and asks her specifically to write about about women's literature which she does she writes this amazing essay called many keys um which you know this is one of the few essays that exists in many draft forms in the archives the size of her archives themselves are incredible for the simple fact that she moved around a lot and was bi-coastal. <laughs> and so the fact that that much of her materials are extant, like, and still still accessible um, is amazing. But what that also meant is that a lot of draft materials for many of the smaller pieces, um, we don't have like the full drafts. But this is one of the few essays where we have like many, many drafts, uh, several drafts of this particular essay. Um, so she was, it was really important to her. And yeah, she submitted the essay. It's an astounding essay that really, I think, presages a lot of second wave feminism by over a decade and makes a case for thinking about the ways in which women's writing is suppressed. So in many ways, it's very autobiographical. 
and she's thinking about a, a worldwide tradition, <laughs> thinking trans historically in a very short space. It's like a 15 page uh, manuscript and doing this recovery work for Emily Dickinson when people are not taking Emily Dickinson very seriously, pointing to contemporaries um, uh, who are also have been silenced or lost. And she makes this makes a case for thinking about women's writing as a form of labor um, a, a, and a kind of labor that's devalued. <laughs> and, um, you know, and that and to think formally about that as well, to think about how, for instance, tropes of repetition recur because of the ways in which if one is primarily working in terms of domestic labor and working within the home, your a lot of your labor is repetitive. Um, and so she's thinking formally, she's thinking historically, she's thinking politically, <laughs> and she submits this essay, and her friend <laughs> says, right. I'm sorry, we can't publish this. <laughs> and it was, it was just jettisoned. Like just... But they say, and they say, for failure to communicate your point. But let yes. me just read an extract of the point she communicated. She says, there is waste in nature, waste in art, and plenty of waste in the lives of women. And then she asserts this amazing sentence, waste is an influence and the making of poetry works against waste. It is a radical theory. It's like, it's a socialist feminist theory of poetic practice, right? And they say it doesn't communicate, but they just didn't like the point. I mean, I think that's the moral of the story. It was saying things that they found uncomfortable and it was positioning gendered labor, as Eric says, as like um, a center of experience that if you think of like, you know, Marxists and Lukash, gender wasn't considered important. And she's saying, actually, it is the one of the centers of our experience and women's experiences and how we create. Wow. Yeah. That's one example. That's one example. And they're like, <laughs> it's a similar thing every time where people want her to do work though. Yeah. And then they say, actually, we don't want what you have to say. And that's what's very interesting. Or if you look at her collaboration with Bernice Abbott, it was like they were, like there was all it was basically institutions entirely controlled by men who were like, these are like amateur women scientists trying to create this. Um, this is her project. So easy to see, which we excerpt the introduction. They're trying to create this kind of like um, democratic idea about arts and sciences and how we look at things. And the institutions were like, no, this is not, you know, you're not basically an expert enough. Um, their gender certainly defined what expert was um, and the way they kind of experimented with kind of um, interdisciplinary was not considered serious and that was one of the things she was charged with a lot seriousness or failure to communicate properly or that was very I mean, it's very transparently yeah gendered now <laughs> yeah. but you know but and even then too I mean, the, yeah, the failure to communicate and also like how much emotion, I mean, this is the thing that's got, that gotten me and see in exploring the archives is how much she's dismissed and her writing is dismissed as being overly emotional. Yeah. Um, you know, taking it that there's no room for affect or emotion, which is actually central to her, her political thinking um, and her poetic thinking and how these two uh, merge. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. So what I'm hearing is clearly she was ahead of her time, that, yeah. that her message wasn't received properly, um, but now it can be. Uh, so there is a time element 
and that you know this now we go to the title of your book the the Muriel Rukeyser era you asked this very provocative question in, in the intro what would have happened if a Jewish radical bisexual single mother had been a defining voice of post-war American poetry. I mean, that would be amazing. <laughs> if it, what if it had been the Rukeyser era? Okay, now we're going to the title. And you have this great line, I love it. You, With the publishing of your book, you say, this is the Rukeyser era, long delayed, but just in time. Tell us about this. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, this is a question I pose first in Unfinished Spirit. And then I pose it as like a hunch question. And then as I was working on the biography and Eric and I were working on this, I came to the story about the Bollingen Prize. Am I saying that right? Bollingen Prize? Am I? Um, in which she was the nominee in 1948. I'm forgetting my dates. 48, right? Yeah. With Ezra Pound. Um, and Pound won. And that kind of reinstated his career after he had been kind of institutionalized for fascist allegiance and treason. And I realized that when I had asked the question originally, I was thinking about how the male canon had been made or kind of a masculinist canon had made in the post-war period that really kind of um, reified practical criticism that didn't want us to think about the political life of poetry as Rukeyser had conceived it. Many women had conceived it and that it was about the canon that we had been offered as students in the post-war period all the way through our PhDs, which is a very small fraction of the writing and thinking that had happened in the 20th century. So that was why I kind of said it originally, it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing. But then I realized it was a true thing. <laughs> and it was like one of those moments I was like, oh my God, it almost was her. Because she was the only woman nominated for this first most important post-war poetry prize. It was her, William Carlos William, Pound and Randall Jarrell. Mm -hmm. And that she, her book, The Green Wave, is this extraordinary book about the surveillance state in the Cold War period, about grappling with form and politics, and then about becoming pregnant and this kind of parturient possibility of the period. And it's extraordinary. So it's exactly that. Like, what if it all had reversed? And this kind of prize-winning moment was given to this woman who was writing in far more expansive form about the possibilities of the world as opposed to kind of what is basically Pound's most fascist poetics. And so there's a real sense that the hunch that I had about how the canon formed was actually a true historical reality about how the canon was formed. And so Eric and I realized as I, we were talking about the book that this was it. This was exactly what had happened in both the larger canonical sense about the works we have access to, how we read, how we're taught, but actually in the real historical granular reality of who was given this award that changed the poetic kind of how we think of modern poetry and it was her she was in the mix so I couldn't believe I kind of couldn't believe it actually yeah I mean, <laughs> there's also I mean there's another sort of there's another narrative that we don't talk about as well which is also the ways in which the new American poetry as it's called the avant-garde various avant-garde at the moment are emerging at the same moment and they end up going to pound, and it's the avant-garde's around uh, what's called the Black Mountain School, the New York. Olson, School. you mean? Are you saying Olson? Yes, I'm getting it. <laughs> 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 uh, the San Francisco Renaissance, and so you know this is this is all happening at the same time. It's forty-eight. Um, Ruth Kaiser is returning to lectures that she started writing in that she initially wrote in nineteen forty and gave at Vassar College, which we collect in the Mirror of Rukeyser era, um, which is that the usable truth. 
And she goes back to those lectures, uh, which are thinking about this uh, pre-war and from a U.S. vantage moment and thinking about the political climate at that, at that time. And she's rewriting them um, and reimagining them for this clearly like post-war moment <laughs> and, and beginning of a Cold War moment. And she's working on this in 48, and it ends up being published in 49, uh, when the award is actually, Ballinger Award is actually uh, given. And uh, her ideas are lifted by one of the new American poetry, like sort of foundational figures, Charles Olson. And I'm I'm now like, as, as I've been sort of in the last month have been also just sort of <laughs> been interacting with some Olson scholars and just realizing how much he's stealing from everybody. He stole her ideas. <laughs> he really for, did. But is often celebrated as like the manifesto of mid-century uh, poetry, uh, projective verse. But Olson aligns himself with, with Pound and actually in his letters with Creeley, like, makes very unkind statements about Rukeyser, who he actually was friendly with. Again, this 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 repeated occurrence of friends actually throwing her under the bus and stealing her ideas. Um, so the the question, you know, that Ruina had posed about, you know, could this have been the Muro Rukeyser era? And that we've just sort of picked up and ran with like there are many ways to think about that, politically, poetically you know, think about the ways in which, um, you know, we, we forgot this, you know, going back to this one, you know, this period of like 12 months, like all, all this stuff was happening where it could have really been her um, at, yeah. at the forefront of everything. And you make, you point out the hypocrisy of the decision for the Bollingen Prize, which was basically, let's separate the the artist from the, the politics, but then they do, they do a complete flip when it comes to Rukeyser, say, well, your politics are too extreme. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Bizarre. And I think it really shows when I was re I reread the introduction and how we kind of set this up and thinking about that period, that um, kind of like schism and thinking that's necessary to condemn one kind of political idea and kind of elevate or kind of not elevate another, but say the other isn't as important, which is always the right wing one, right? That schism is how we are still forced to think all the time. And, it re and she really questions it and pushes against it a lot in all of the prose writing. And I think that's what was interesting too. Like, I want to say, it's not just that it's the Merkezer era now, that era was always happening. We just didn't have access to it. And so we do know that historically, there's so much interesting work that was being written that just didn't become kind of this, really these droplets of the canon that we have in a way. And many people were writing and thinking more in more nuanced ways about this kind of like intellectual schism that we're all forced to accept as normal. And that, that, that point about, um, you know, that we are in it still, that, that these are persistent mm -hmm. strains, um, this kind of binaristic oppositional thinking, these, these are persistent strains. So a lot of what Rukeyser can teach us, I think, is like how to think differently about, about our own moment. And one of the reasons why, you know, aside from like the the, the obvious kind of novelty of thinking about Mir Rukeyser era rather than an Ezra Pound era is to really think about the, <laughs> thinking about the consequences of, yeah. you know, a neo-fascism at this particular 
you know, historical juncture in terms of both national politics and global politics. You know, it's it's sometimes it's quite scary <laughs> to, to you know, as as you're reading the book and thinking like, oh, oh, like thing things haven't changed <laughs> in in the last, you know, you know, I mean, we're talking like eighty years. Yeah. yeah. It is scary. It is scary. So, so now we're in. It is a long era, but it, we're we're in the Rukeyser era. Her <laughs> works, thanks to you both uh, and other scholars, have have been bringing forth her ideas. Tell us, you know, you you in the book you have reviews, lectures, stories, essays, and for those who may just know her poetry, what did you discover in her prose that helps you understand her, her poetry, her legacy, her career, etc.? Well, for me. It is, I think for for each of us, it's something different, for sure. But for me, part of what I discovered is um, that there are through lines uh, throughout her thinking. You know, there's something consistent that, that and sort of bearing the imprint of her voice um, and her worldview. But there's also something quite impressive about how varied it is in terms of what those views can be. So there's something almost formally like consistent in terms of her, if we think about how one thinks as a kind of form, but the content itself is always changing. And then also the mode in which she's writing about it is changing. I think for me, it's also one of the things that I, I really value about, about the variety of forms in which she's working is to think about how how the forms we adopt as writers um, can and should change depending upon the ways in which we're conceptualizing the the work itself you know in terms of the immediacy of the work you know how certain forms uh, beg to be used because they're a little bit more urgent or the ways in which we can deploy forms uh, to you know like use a book review in order, something that is often thought of as not being um, weighty, as having a lot of significance for the understanding of an artist's uh, work, a writer's work, or an activist's work. You know, it's a book review, like it seems to be inconsequential, like something you do as a professional, like in, in academia, we call it like mm -hmm. professional <laughs> service. It's not so much a publication. But like, you know, I, I really am impressed by like, she writes her book reviews, like I write my book reviews, like it's an occasion to, to make a point and to think through an issue. Um, you know, so I, I'm really, the ways in which she adapts forms, the ways in which she overwrites forms, uh, meaning like sort of infusing them with her own sensibility and purpose. So that part, that's part of what I, what I learn <laughs> from her. A lot of it as a writer, like the possibilities mm -hmm. of what I yeah. can do as a writer. Yeah, I guess I kind of it's similar actually that her unboundedness in form, the ability, the desire to cross genres, to train her eye in all things and not be limited by the idea of specialization, which she really goes after as a Cold War invention, right? you're in your discipline, you're specialized, you only look at this thing, which we, of course, are also trained in as academics, um, but that actually that you need to kind of exceed those forms to actually engage the world fully and understand the world. And that's really what a lot of her prose does. It's saying, actually, I'm going to train my eye and all my thinking 
And I'm going to bring that to bear on this. And she has her whole thing about not wasting resources, about using all of ourselves. And I think as an academic and a writer and a parent and a human partner, that's how you should approach the world. It became, to me, it kind of started to become more and more philosophical as I, as myself, I gave birth and I was reading her writing about giving birth and I'm trying to do kind of, you know, I want to think about all of these disciplinary spaces. And she's got, she's giving us ways to think about that, that I had not had access to before, I think. And I think that's probably what readers can get. It is literally a different theoretical kind of space to weave through and learn from. But definitely the cross genre, I think, is the, I mean, that is the thing with her. It's it's what's most exciting. Nice. Now this, this is a, this is a difficult question, but if you could encapsulate the message that Muriel is trying to give to us in a few sentences, what would that be? Like, and it could be anything. It could be philosophical, political. You know, can you can you boil it down? Maybe we can't. Maybe we can't. But what what what's a, what's a what's a recurring theme in her work that you could capture the essence of her most fundamental message? I think I don't know. Like how, <laughs> how to formulate it? Like point to like there are certain oh. concepts or you know sort of ideas that recur in her work, and um, I think those become keys to sort of under understanding mm-hmm. her and like that message that she's giving it. And one is like the importance of messages. Mm-hmm. Communication is absolutely important uh, to her Kaiser, and that's one of the through lines that runs throughout her work. Um, you know, the reason for switching forms so often is to be able to not only experiment in an aesthetic sense, but also sometimes out of necessity, like political necessity, um, like to experiment in terms of getting one's message across, you know, how to cross boundaries between audiences, how to relay one's subject position so that you're not caught in an echo chamber um, you know, we're, we're very familiar with the echo chambers today, of course, you know, we choose our social media, we choose our, our, our news networks and, and venues of choice. And here, here it played back to us, but that, that's existed, that, that's, that, that's a history of, of sort of mass media <laughs> as well, sort of at different scales uh, and, and grades of, of echo chambers. And so she's really interested in that sense of communication. It's human component, it's political component, the ways in which, in thinking about politics as transformation, you know, both an, an investment in and commitment to social justice, but also like really trying to transform uh, systems, but beginning at the human level. And that all begins for her, as, I, as I've come to appreciate Ruth Kaiser, through, through communication. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. I think similarly, the idea that the process is the point, um, that things don't end. And she comes to that conclusion, a lot of the prose work, actually, that, you know, she talks about living alive and now, or that we're kind of always in this continual opening to new things. And that that is uh, that becomes the most potent political and imaginative tool. And she has this beautiful thing in the usable truth, which we end on in the introduction, She says, and if you come with your lives to meet what is here, you are the heroes of the poems, for there is the meaning place, and that defines the form and content of the poetry, I tell you, facing and communicating, that will be our life in the world and poetry. And there's a real sense in a lot of it, she's like, see what's around you, look at the things as they really are, and face them and encounter them and engage them and be open to them. 
and then transform yourself and keep going to some degree. Um, so it's a really like, you know, she's like a really hopeful writer in really dark times in a way, because she's a realist about things um, and she wants to keep encountering them, I think. Yeah. There's, there's this one phrase that she uses a lot in um, the 50s and 60s, and it recurs in a lot of like fragments, like stuff that's not, it doesn't actually, I, that I recall recur in the stuff, the material that we recover for the Mir Rukeyser era or that re occurs in other published material. But she uses this phrase, um, toward a future requirement. Mm all the time and yeah. um, initially she was going to work on a second edition of the life of poetry and i if i remember correctly that was the title of the new chapter that she wanted to add at the end of that of that new volume of that, mm -hmm. that reimagining of that 1949 book but yeah she's very concerned with this idea like the, the sense of like possibility but also like that possibility is actually demanded by the world that, yeah. that you're facing. This is the core of, of what we've been calling process thinking, which not all listeners necessarily, you know, know or, un or understand like what, what that means, but it really is about a commitment to evolution and working out of the one's own contingent circumstances to evolve oneself in the system in which one lives. But that also means like when you're working in that, fashion um, as Rukeyser is you're also aware of like the ways in which there are constraints that you have to have to face and to work through um, so that sense of a requirement and that's coming not only from the present but also the future um, I think that's really yeah that would have been a good revision I wish we had it yeah maybe we'll find it <laughs> <laughs> I know a, there has to be another cache somewhere <laughs> wow well this is it's been so fun talking with you because both of you are clearly so passionate about Ru Kaiser and anyone that is interested in learning more about Muriel please get a copy of the new book the Muriel Ru Kaiser era selected prose I think we could go on for a long time because it's just really fascinating but I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. And it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jonathan. That was Eric Keenahan and Rowena Kennedy Epstein, editors of the new collection of Muriel Rukeyser's prose, The Muriel Rukeyser Era. You can purchase Eric and Rowena's new book in hardcover or as an ebook at our website, cornellpress.cornell.edu, and use the promo code 09POD to save 30% off. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. <laughs>